Good evening. This is Bird Calls from the Knoll Foundation Studios here at Red River Radio, and we're glad you're joining us. Tonight's program is made possible in part by the Community Foundation of North Louisiana. To take your calls tonight, we have a phone bank of volunteers. We invite you to call in with your questions about our feathered friends and the avian world at 800-552-8502. I'm Cliff Shackleford, your host of Bird Calls, which has been on, been on the air here at Red River Radio for over 10 years. I'll be introducing our guest in just a bit, and we'll be ready to answer your questions about birds this evening. So let's hear from you soon by calling us at 800-552-8502. Again, 1-800-552-8502. So we always start with a recap of last month's conservation tip. And last month we talked about controlling the non-native fire ant the Solenopsis invicta, the red imported fire ant, because there's many species of fire ants, so we have to be very clear who we're talking about or what we're talking about. And this one is the, the non-native one that was brought into Mobile, Alabama in the 30s. It came in on a ship and just went gangbusters and has spread all over the country. It's gotten about as far west as it can get till it gets too arid. It's gotten about as far north as it can get until it gets too cold, but heck, if this climate change thing is real, get ready, because if it's gonna get cooler, um, or wetter rather, to the west, fire ants will react to that. If it's warmer to the north, they will march north, so. And let me tell you, we've got fire ants in our yard, you do not want them. So, what I recommended was spot treatment and, and find something that works for the mounds that pop in your yard, and you have to take care of them, just like we take care of on our own properties, roaches and rats and other pesky things we don't like. Um, we're responsible for those. And so uh, if you like birds and other wildlife, taking care of those ant mounds with spot treatment will help because those fire ants are definitely carnivorous. They're, they're looking for baby birds in the breeding season. They're looking for lizards and grasshoppers and, and other bird food. So if they're not eating birds, they could be eating bird food, and that's not ever good. So uh, the, the key word is control. Um, I think eradication is not going to be an option with fire ants, but keep up with the fire ants on your property um, because they are, are no good to our birds, and uh, they, they, they can be controlled on your property. So tackle those fire ants when you can. It is the pledge drive, and we just finished, Kiara and I just finished doing about 90 minutes of the pledge drive. So we're going to have the show, but if you want to make your pledge, you can do so by calling 1-800-552-8502 and pledge any dollar amount. And if you love this show and you want to keep it on the air, uh, please make your pledge now, and that would be very helpful. If you've already pledged, you, you've done a good deed already. Um, so nudge someone close to you, family or friends, that also listen and make sure that they make their pledge too at 1-800-552-8502. So we're going to profile the common grackle tonight. And let's listen to the clicks and squeaky call notes of the common grackle here. It's a whole flock of them. 
multiple individuals calling here. So this is the common grackle. It's slightly larger than a blue jay, yet smaller than a crow. The sexes are alike in the common grackle, and overall, they're a glossy black that often shows flashes of purple, blue, bronze, and greenish gold when the light hits the feathers just right, a feature known as iridescence. In the dark shade of trees, they simply look plain black. Decades ago, there was more than one species considered here, including the purple grackle, the bronzed grackle, and the Florida grackle, but today they're all lumped together into the one species, the common grackle. The word grackle, spelled G-R-A-C-K-L-E, comes from the Latin for jackdaw, which are old world species in the corvid family that includes many all black species of crows and ravens. Grackles and crows both are all black, really their only similarity, and they're not related. Grackles are in the family with cowbirds, orioles, and blackbirds. There are two other species of grackles in the U.S. that are larger, the boat-tailed grackle and the great-tailed grackle, the latter of which is familiar in store parking lots. The common grackle that's profiled here is found on grassy lawns, ag fields, or in open woods, and rarely found on pavement. During winter here in the Red River Radio listening area, common grackles often congregate into large, noisy, and roaming flocks as they search for food or, near dusk, places to roost for the night. Sometimes other species loosely feed in the big common grackle flocks, including American robins and rusty blackbirds. To see a photo of a common grackle snapped by James Childress, please visit the Bird Calls page at redriverradio.org. O-R-G. All right, tonight I'm very excited to have a returning guest. We have Dr. Van Remsen, who's on the phone, and we're going to introduce him here in a minute. Um, he's the Emeritus Professor of Natural Science and Curator of Birds with the Museum of Natural Science at LSU in Baton Rouge. And he was on the show 13 months ago, and he gave a bio that was so good we've recorded it with my chit chat in there mixed in and we're going to replay it which we've never done on this show to my knowledge we've never grabbed a snippet of a past show and replayed it so we're going to replay uh, Dr. Remsen's uh, bio and then we're going to pull the real man on the show on the phone here in a minute so let's listen to that pre-recorded bio from 13 months ago Tonight, I'm very excited to introduce our guest. Dr. Van Remsen is joining us via Zoom. He's Emeritus Professor of LSU Baton Rouge. Dr. Remsen, thank you for joining us. It's an honor, Cliff. Great. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Normally, the the person giving this would read a long bio, but I'd like for you to tell us about yourself. So go ahead. I'm going to turn it over to you. Well, I got interested in birds when I was a little kid. That's always stuck with me. I actually figured out I could make a living studying birds. That was uh, great news. I went to did my undergraduate degree in biology at Stanford in California, and then my PhD in Berkeley. Filed my dissertation and drove to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where I started my job as a professor and curator of birds at the LSU Museum of Natural Science. And I just retired a couple of years ago. Great. You had some big shoes to fill. Tell us about who you replaced. Oh, yeah. My hero, George Lowry. Yeah. Yeah. George Lowry is one of those uh, great men. He's from Monroe, 
by the way, up there in North Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And he took LSU from having essentially, you know, no biology program and nothing ornithologically speaking, and uh, made it a platform for ornithological research that, you know, we're still trying to fill his shoes today. It takes two or three of us. Mm -hmm. He started the museum in 1936 when he died in 78. I followed in his footsteps, intimidated by the uh, size of the shoes I was going to try mm -hmm. to fill. The thing that gets me about George is what he must have overcome to get LSU into the position it is now. Mm. LSU is a pretty good school, but it can't compete with the national recognition that someplace like Harvard or Berkeley gets or something like that, but it does now in ornithology. Yeah, yeah. And that is because of George Lowry. You know, so here we are, LSU, and our big academic rivals are Cornell University, University of Michigan, Berkeley, Harvard, Yale, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Yeah. And of all those, you mentioned this, you know, it kind of put the South on the map. You know, they brought the attention to Louisiana, as you alluded to. So that's yeah, nice. Exactly. Yeah. It has made um, LSU and Louisiana yeah. a prominent place in ornithological history, really. So that's the recording from 13 months ago. And uh, we have the, the real McCoy. D Dr. Remsen, are you there? I'm here, Cliff. Good to be back. Thanks. And you got to hear yourself. What did you think? Uh, additions and corrections uh, will follow soon. Well, it's, it's always <laughs> interesting to hear funny. your own voice. Funny. I know. It is. Uh, yeah. What, do I really sound like that? Oh, it was great. It was great. That's yeah. why we redid it. So, it, And it saved you from having to tell us about yourself so we can jump right into it. And actually, for those who missed the episode where you were here 13 months ago, they can go back to uh, the podcast on the Red River Radio website and look for the September 2022 episode. It's got the brown-headed cowbird was the profile species. And you can you can listen to Dr. Remsen when he was here before. And we talked a lot about Louisiana birding, and we talked a little bit about uh, Cajun food while out birding across Louisiana. And we didn't get to touch on museum curation and the value of collecting birds and housing birds. So that's why you're back tonight, because I'm really hoping to jump into that topic about um, the value of, of bird skin. So let's jump in. So as a museum curator, uh, explain the value of housing specimens. Why should listeners care about preserving birds, dead birds? Each one of those specimens is a is a, a record of a, of the individual's biology through space and time. These uh, things change, and uh, so we'll never be able to get specimens from 1936. But we uh, know what uh, birds look like in 1936, and there are s subtle changes that occur over decades' time span that are uh, recorded forever for posterity in museum collections. Mm -hmm. So um, briefly describe how birds are prepared. So, you know, people find dead birds all the time. Um, and then you're, you're the kind of guy you're, where you are, you want some of those. So tell us how you all prepare them and tell us what a study skin is. So when doing that, describe the difference between the typical taxidermied mount, like people are familiar with, like the dead duck on the wall, um, versus the study skins that you have tucked away in cabinet drawers? 
a lot of uh, the preparation technique is the same. We turn them inside out and put a cotton body back in. We remove as much uh, meat and tissue, soft tissue, as possible. We try to make them a little more compact, shorter necked, uh, legs are crossed and folded into the box, folded into the body to save space. And uh, once that specimen is dried and it's stored properly, it should last forever. So we are still going back and looking at specimens that were collected in the early 1800s, believe it or not. Wow. Is that, is that the earliest we have? And where, where would those some of those be located? The British Museum of Natural History probably has some of the earliest specimens, mm-hmm. uh, either that or the museum in Paris. Uh, Charles Darwin's specimens are still looking good today, collected in mid-1800s. Great. You're listening to Bird Calls. I'm Cliff Shackelford. Our guest is Dr. Van Remsen, Emeritus Professor of Natural Science and Curator of Birds with the Museum of Natural Science at LSU in Baton Rouge. If you have a question for either one of us, the phone number is 800-552-8502. You could direct your question to me or hopefully to our guest um, about museums and the value of of, of, of of having bird skins. And so let's keep going with uh, the question of, you know, what's some of the information that's gathered from an individual study skin? What can we learn from that information? We try to make each bird's death uh, as useful as possible to as many future and ongoing scientific projects as possible. Uh, let me just tell you right up front, you know, we all, all museum people love birds and they don't particularly like killing them or anything mm-hmm. like that. And uh, so if we are going to take the life of one of those beautiful creatures, we're going to make that as use, useful as possible to research on those birds. So that's our general philosophy and ethics. Uh, the, the difference between a, a museum specimen and a taxidermy mount is the data that we record. Okay? It's that, that, that sort of that autopsy report, uh, a necropsy report. The, the label is as important as the specimen itself. In fact, a museum specimen is really only useful if it has a label. Mm-hmm. And that label, of course, has the date and locality, the exact locality. So we place the specimen in space, geographically, in time. So we can measure changes over geography and changes over time. And then, of course, the, the, the stuff that's always been gathered from museum specimens are the sex and uh, the internal indicators of how old the bird is. So if we're sorting our samples into first-year birds or older birds, um, there are internal markers that tell us that a bird was born that year. And so we record that as well. So um, our our specimens can all be placed into four categories for analysis, male, female, and uh, first-year birds or older. And then we also record, uh, I hope you, you... you're going to have the, the audience quizzed on this at the end, aren't huh. you? Politically? You bet. You bet. Yeah, okay. I hope everybody's <laughs> got their pick. This, this, this goes on and on. Yes. We, we, we record the, uh, the soft part colors, the bare part colors, the eye, the bill, the legs, and so on, because that stuff fades or is removed uh, at death. And there are age and sex and geographic differences and all that stuff. So we record the colors. Uh, we record 
the fat levels. Now, we're not, uh, you know, being doing any body shaming here or anything <laughs> like that, but, but uh, that fat, which is right under the skin, it's called subcutaneous fat, is, a, is an important bit of data to record because it tells us whether the bird is migrating or not or if it has just migrated and how good a condition it is. So during migration, like right now, birds are storing fat under their skin to burn as fuel for long-distance migration. So um, uh, that's important to put the fat the fat level on. Mm -hmm. uh, molt. Uh, the term molt, most people are, have an idea about this. They, birds change their feathers, replace their feathers at least once a year. And you can imagine the amount of energy a, chain, it need, a bird needs to change change out uh, 10,000 feathers. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the scheduling of molt during the year is a very important part of a bird's annual cycle. So from inside of the skin, we can tell exactly which feather, uh, which areas of the feathers are, are molting and so on. So that goes on there. You want me to go on? Well, go well, on. let's let's stop and <clears throat> reflect on a few things. You mentioned you mentioned aging birds, um, so skull ossification. So, you know the 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 deer hunters they collect a deer. They can look at the dentition of a deer and and get the approximate age within probably half a year. But you tell us how you would age a bird and and what level of detail can you get to the aging. Well, there are some things you can do with the plumage, the external part, but the part that's gone, unless you do the dissection, are, are two things. You mentioned skull ossification. That's a big fancy word that just means uh, how many layers of bone have been added to the skull. So in a first-year bird, bird was born this year, uh, you can see right into the brain. Mm -hmm. It's translucent. Mm -hmm. And then they add additional bone as they age. And so... That uh, allows us to tell whether or not the bird's in its first year of life. And there is also a little outgrowth of the intestine that has the a name Bursa of Fabricius, named after the person who discovered it. And we still don't know, even know what this thing is for. But birds in their first year of life have this little um, outgrowth of their intestine. And so the presence of that indicates that bird was born that year. So those are the two things we get from the inside of the skin. So so you can tell, you know, let's let's think about a familiar backyard bird, the northern cardinal. A young young bird's going to have that dark bill. Um, still, it's going to have some adult-looking plumage, but you can tell it's young, born that year with that dark brownish bill. But let's say that tur it turns into a male, it's bright red, um, you can't tell if that bird is two years old, six years old, or ten years old, right? No, you can't. And, no. and, and that's but something that that's something difficult for for people to comprehend. We can do it pretty well with mammals, um, although take take a stray dog into the vet, and they'll give you all kinds of answers about how old that dog is. Yeah, yeah. So, but with oh. with birds, the thing I wanted to make sure people realize is that. And you mentioned this with plumage, we can tell if they're in an immature plumage or an adult plumage, and then with the skull ossification when the bird's in the hand. But, but we can't tell a two-year-old cardinal from an eight-year-old cardinal. And and cardinals, by the way, could live over a decade. Uh, but we can't we can't tell that by looking at them. And that you know the 
the the legs are always gnarly on a bird. The scales um, that, that makes them look old with the dry looking skin. Uh, but we can't look at their legs and say, oh, that looks like an old bird. So, so I just want to point that out. The other thing you mentioned, which let's talk about, is is you didn't just throw out the that birds have 10,000 feathers. And, and if you're a swan, you've got more than that. But mention that real quick about how many feathers on, are on a single bird, approximately, of course. Well, you know, uh, kudos to the person who actually can't do <laughs> You know, I didn't, uh, but I am told uh, that birds have between uh, three or four thousand feathers. In the case of a humming, even a little hummingbird, mm-hmm. got thousands, feathers, little tiny feathers, to uh, up to ten thousand feathers, and they have to imagine the energy it takes to yeah. regrow those things every year. So uh, that's why the timing of molt is really an important part of the biology of the bird. Neat. So, yeah, you mentioned the, that the label is super important. The, the, the data that you're mentioning is, is fits onto a pretty small little label. Um, we're we're going to have to get a bigger label. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the, and the older we get, you know, it's harder to read that, even with cheaters' uh, glasses. Well, I, think we're, <laughs> we're, I think we're going to uh, uh, printed labels uh, and bigger labels yeah. just for some of those reasons. Uh, we also, there are something like 15 data fields on a uh, specimen. So a cardinal specimen that is collected now would have, uh, if you were to think of it as a data sheet, there'd be 15 columns of wow. data that would go with that bird. So that's a lot of data out there for people to analyze. Uh, and we, we also, so th- th- things people might not know uh, or we also save stomach contents, at least we do here at LSU. So we have a representation of what that bird was eating. And uh, now we didn't notice when we started saving stomach contents, uh, but now with uh, some of these sophisticated DNA techniques, we'll be able to know exactly what those birds were eating. Even if we can't identify it under the microscope, uh, we'll be able to identify it genetically. So uh, and you, you are what you eat. You don't have to be a biologist to understand the importance of that. Yeah. We also save uh, parasites, too. The um, ecto, the outside parasites, and the endo, the internal parasites. Uh, and then probably the most important thing of all is a DNA sample. Mm-hmm. And uh, a little bit of uh, Go Tigers stuff here. Um, LSU was the first collection in the world to start an official part of their museum called the Collection of Genetic Resources and save DNA samples, tissue samples, from every individual collected in the museum. Uh, so, uh, you know, little old LSU down here in the bayou was a major pioneer in the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, saving of DNA for DNA analysis. And we do have the world's largest DNA collection here at LSU for birds, by far. So, so that's three different samples, for example, for a bird. You mentioned the bird itself, the skin itself, the stomach contents, and then the tissue samples. So tell us how those are each, are they all bundled together and stored? How, how are they housed and shelved? The bird study skin, uh, that's the term we use uh, for the the preparation 
of uh, these sort of relaxed uh, non-taxidermy things are stored in airtight, uh, dark cabinets and should last forever. They are cross-referenced to vials uh, in another part of the museum that house the stomach contents. And then they all are cross-referenced to the DNA sample with a number in the uh, cryogenic part mm. of the museum. We have uh, all sorts of, of sophisticated um, freezing, freezer device, freezing devices downstairs that um, keeps that tissue from de degrading. Uh, and these are all linked, of course, in computer databases. Okay. So, so the stomach contents are in a little vial, and what's the preservative that they're soaking in? It's just ethanol. Yeah, ethanol, okay. Yeah. And so you mentioned that the tissues are in a deep freeze, um, yeah. very dependent on electricity. So what do you all do, especially where you are, where you've had Katrina and other hurricanes? Um, what do you have as a backup if power goes out? Uh, just what you would think, and that is uh, a, a backup generator mm -hmm. and then a backup backup generator. And so, <laughs> uh, we're actually moving towards a different method of storing tissues in a buffer that doesn't a buffer solution that prevents degradation, mm -hmm. and uh, we may become uh, independent of the grid. Oh, that's neat. That's that'll yeah. be helpful. You're listening to Bird Calls. I'm Cliff Shackleford, your host. Our guest on the phone from LSU Baton Rouge is Dr. Van Remsen. He's emeritus professor. And we're talking about museums, the value of holding dead birds, what we can learn from dead birds. Um, so let's jump in some more. Uh, but if you have questions, if you're listening and you have questions, the number here is 800-552-8502. Again, 1-800-552-8502. Call in before 6.45 with your question would be great. We start winding down really soon after that. Uh, so, Dr. Remsen, what sorts of things do museums have to battle to keep bird skin safe and long-lasting? You said they'll, they'll, they should last forever, but there's, of course, all kinds of critters out there that would think otherwise. Um, like dermestid beetles, but tell us what you all have to do for curation to keep these specimens lasting forever. The cabinets that they're stored in are specially made, specially designed to be uh, impervious to dust, insects, everything. So they they are our most expensive item on the budget, mm -hmm. these, these specially made cabinets. But once we have them, the cabinets will last forever. And then what about lighting? You mentioned soft parts earlier. That that fades once the bird is deceased. But yeah. what about the – go ahead. Well, that's why we record those colors on the label. Right. But what about um, the incandescent lights? If you have that roseate spoonbill under those lights that aren't specially made for museums, what can happen to feather fading? Is that yeah. a concern? Uh, not when they're in the cabinets. Now, that is a concern for the very few specimens we have on public display mm -hmm. because they are, they are out in the light. Okay? And uh, if the glass isn't uh, up to specifications and so on, we have to use special lights, special glass, and all that yeah. kind of thing, and they still fade a little bit. But 99% of our specimens are uh, locked up in the dark, uh, waiting for the next researcher 
to to open up the cabinet mm-hmm. and use them. So they're briefly exposed to light and so on while they're being handled. But okay. uh, as far as we know, that doesn't affect them long term. Okay. So you just mentioned about the next person to examine the specimen. So who who exactly is coming to these collections? What what are they doing? What are, what sorts of things are they looking for? Can you give us some examples? Sure. Um, there are people coming to study our birds all the time. So they are looking for things like, uh, oh, I'll give you a sort of an amazing example. example. Uh, if there are bird people out there, they probably have a copy of the National Geographic Society Field Guide to Birds. Uh, the uh, National Geographic Society sent their artists uh, not to the Smithsonian next door, but down here to LSU uh-huh. to get accurate soft part colors for their illustrations for uh, bird species, uh, different age and sex categories as well. Uh, so um, uh, that's uh, that's one use, and what and people study how that changes. Uh, regionally and uh, through the season. Uh, just about everything on that label, people come uh, to, use, to come to study uh, for various projects. So people are studying the timing of molt all the time. So people come and use our collection to quantify the, the molt schedule of particular, uh, particular species. Uh, people are looking for ways to distinguish age and sex of birds from the plumage. So they anchor their age and sex categories by the, the uh, gonad measurements on the, on the label uh, and by the skull ossification and that funny little bursa of fibrisius. Mm-hmm. And then they look for plumage differences that are associated with those uh, with young birds versus older birds. Uh, the DNA collection is used, you know, hundreds of times per year uh, by people looking at the relationships uh, among populations of birds, the family tree of birds, and so on. The uh, conservation biologists use the DNA collection to assess population structure in endangered species. Mm-hmm. So, you know, everybody has a feeling for the problems of inbreeding and low genetic diversity and things like that. Some of these small bird populations are actually partly in danger because of uh, low levels of genetic diversity. And that comes from analyzing our DNA samples. Mm. So that, that section of genetic resources is constantly, I, I, I suspect, 100 loans per year are made from the DNA collection alone wow. uh, to researchers at other institutions to um, examine the, D- the DNA. Wow. And for that, do they need to come to the collection and get it out of the... No, we we have a special... We, we ship things to other collections. It's, it's a laborious process. It takes a lot of permits mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of special shipping. And, uh, and dry uh, ice, or how do you do the... Yeah, dry ice. Yeah. Uh, we send stuff to other people's laboratories where the DNA is then uh, sequenced. Neat. You're listening to Bird Calls. The number here is 800-552-8502. If you have a question for Dr. Remsen about birds, 
Um, and uh, let's jump in some more. So we're talking about um, museums with study skins. And uh, let's, let's switch over to mounted birds that are on public display. Where are some of the best public displays of mount, mounted birds in the U.S. that people can travel to see and maybe tie it into when, when they're, where they're going? Um, so they might be traveling to Cincinnati or L.A. Where, where would you suggest some of the top public displays of mounted birds are in the U.S.? Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., uh, the American Museum in New York City, uh, the Field Museum uh, in Chicago. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, there are LSU alums in charge of or working in most of those collections. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, we, uh, talk, we, and, we talked about that the um, last episode you were on about how, how you had a uh, LSU – a lobbyist who wanted to put you in touch with uh, some of the big wigs at the big institutions, and you said, "Well, which of my, which of my former students would you be putting me in touch with?" So, uh, I, yeah, I love well, that. Can, That's great. We can uh, use that. We can brag about the Tigers uh, again, at least for your Louisiana listeners. That's right. The, That's right. The, the Denver Museum of Natural History is a special place for me because I grew up in Denver, and they have a fantastic public display of uh, birds and it includes a lot of stuff from louisiana oh wow uh, the the uh, curator of birds there back in the 20s and 30s alfred bailey came to louisiana to get material from chenier Teague on the louisiana coast hmm. and uh, so we're well represented there uh, at LSU, we're primarily a research. You know, when people think of museums, this is a, a point that uh, I'd like everybody to understand. When people think of museums, they really think of those places with the public displays. Mm -hmm. you know? And uh, the LSU, Muse LSU Museum and a lot of other museums really don't have much in the way of public displays. They're more like research laboratories. So uh, for those who have been in the LSU Museum of Natural Science. We have a small collection of dioramas and mounted birds, Louisiana birds for public education. Uh, but 99.9% .9 of our stuff is is in the research collection. We're really a we're called a museum, but in many ways we're really a research lab. And so to access that, you really need to be a, a researcher with with objectives, with some right. questions yeah. so, to ask. Right. You wouldn't want uh, you know, people just sort of wandering in there and yeah. rummaging around these specimens, uh, would you? So, you, you know, people have to have a legitimate reason for uh, us to open our collections for their use. Right, right. That reminded me of uh, Richard Meinartshagen. Am I saying it right? That's right. Yeah, he, he, that's an interesting story. We, we don't have time to talk about him. Um, we could probably have a 15-minute segment about that interesting guy, but he, he's, he's the kind of guy you didn't want to just let loose in the back of your collection because he would yeah. uh, sometimes uh, take things home with him. Not yeah, good. His own labels, take the original labels off and put his own labels yeah. on. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So uh, if anyone's interested in that, his name is Richard Meinartshagen, and I don't know how to spell M-E-I-N, or, or the first few letters, you can Google it. 
Uh, but there's some really interesting, almost James Bond-esque um, in a bad way uh, with, with his story. Uh, but yeah, you don't want him in your museum, that's for sure. But he's long dead. This is something from, what, 80 years ago when he was at large? Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned the museum in London. That's the Tring. Um, have you been there? I have not been there. No, I, I have been to London. Uh, and I actually lived in England for six months, but uh, I never went to the museum. Yeah, it's it's what to the north northwest of the of yeah. London a, a little bit. Uh, yeah, and it's definitely houses the largest collection of birds. It's on my bucket list to go visit that. Um, so I, I don't know that I've met anybody that's visited the Tring in London, but that well, that that would be important to me, like seeing the Eiffel Tower. In, in in Paris, it would be this would be my thing. Not Big Ben, but not the royal family. I would want to go see the Tring Museum. Yeah, I I didn't have any transportation, so I couldn't um, uh, couldn't really get there. Uh, but this gives me an opening uh, for another brag on LSU. You know, uh, the British Museum of Natural History is the largest collection of birds in the world, mm -hmm. um, but I think. The LSU Museum of Natural History actually is more important in terms of overall data. I think we have more data in our museum than they do. Yeah. The reason for that is that most of their specimens were collected in the 1800s, early 1900s, when very little of that label data that I went over was was placed on the specimens. You know, they were collected for curiosities and. You know, they weren't, didn't have research in mind for, uh, for most of them. Uh, so you take our 200,000 specimens and multiply them by 15 data fields. Mm. And you take the British Museum's 1 million specimens and multiply it by two or three data fields, oh, yeah. and we clobber them. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Mm. Yeah, you're right. The, the train is full of, you know, the, the days of collecting birds like they did like they still do stamps and baseball yeah. cards and and you the know hobbyists. hobbyists right and so w once those usually men died kids didn't want the specimens so they looked for the the closest place to put them and 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 so the tring was was definitely the repository for a lot of those private collections but you're right they were they were collected when it was just uh, species X and location Y, and that was about it. That's right. Yeah, but neat. I still want to go there. I still want to see specimens that Linnaeus probably touched, um, Darwin certainly touched, um, Audubon looked at, things like that. That would be super neat to see. Yeah. So, okay, uh, you're listening to Bird Calls. The number here is 800-552-8502. Um, if you have a question for us, um, it is the pledge drive. You don't have to make a pledge if you have a burning question. We would love to hear from you. Again, the number is 1-800-552-8502. Take advantage of Dr. Remsen on the air with us just for a few more minutes. We're talking about museums and collections and dead birds and their value. And uh, let's talk about, uh, can you explain to us, Dr. Remsen, how specimen data can aid in conservation. You alluded to that a minute ago, um, that the conservationists are trying to figure out the, the, the species level that we're talking about, but maybe can you jump into uh, maybe a de uh, 
detail example? Uh, let's see here. Um, yeah, there are some birds called storm petrels that breed on various islands in uh, the Atlantic uh, and the Pacific. And these are little grayish, blackish birds that you never see unless you're out on the ocean. They only come to land to, um, to breed. They spend their entire lives out in the ocean. We have two or three species in the Gulf of Mexico that are hard to see. Uh, they look alike, but the study of specimens, not just the DNA, but also the morphology, you know, subtle differences in plumage and so on, indicate that uh, a species that we used to think was just one big species that bred on a whole bunch of different islands actually is a half a dozen species. Mm. And each one of those are, needs special conservation concern because they only breed on that island. Mm -hmm. okay? And so we wouldn't have known that if it weren't for the uh, collection of those specimens and DNA samples. So now we know we have a, a, a conservation problem on our hand. It's not just one species that gets around all over the place. Uh, each population only breeds on a single island, so they're very vulnerable. Interesting, interesting. And then, of course, your specialty in the tropics, we've got so many cryptic species that have come come along that in a you know in a museum they look just like a an, another species. So it was just thought to be the same critter until the live bird was singing and it was in a certain location. So uh, explain what a cryptic species is and how how that impacts um, conservation. We have a great example here at LSU, uh, there is a species of thrush that occurs in the, in Amazonia uh, that uh, was thought to be a single species of thrush. But three LSU people uh, figured out, it took them a long time, that it was actually two species, one of which is pretty rare and restricted to a very specific habitat. They, if you look at the specimens uh, and don't know what to look for, they look extremely similar. Mm -hmm. But because we recorded the bear parts colors, the iris color in particular, and the bill color to a certain degree on labels, um, it, you could see that there were, you know, 95% of them looked one way, but there was 5% of these individuals that had different bills and different iris colors and so on. So that got uh, John O'Neill, one of our people here, really thinking. Uh, and then Dan Lane, one of our research associates, noted that the, uh, the bird that, that they thought was one species seemed to have two different sets of songs and calls. Mm. And then finally one day it dawned out, maybe, maybe two species were involved. And then he remembered that John O'Neill uh, had noted that there were like two flavors of this of the species that were, were nearly identical. And uh, so the, we collected some more specimens with, with uh, known vocalizations, the two vocal types. And then a third person here at LSU, Luciano Naka, who's an Argentine-Brazilian uh, ornithologist, he did the DNA work to show that these two things, even though they were so similar, uh, weren't not were, were not just uh, 
different species, but weren't even in the same section of thrushes. Wow. They just looked a lot alike, but were not related at all. They both were thrushes, but um, not even closely related. Wow. And so tell us the species um, and the two, the two involved here. The, uh, the new one is called uh, the Varzia thrush, and it is scientific name, which was described by, was described as a new species, oh, 10 years ago by John O'Neill, Dan Lane, and Luciano Naka, um, is called Turtus, that's the genus, just like our robin, uh, Sanchezorum, and it's named after our uh, man and wife Peruvian field assistants, who uh, were essential to our field program in Peru. They worked with us. Uh, Manuel and Marta Sanchez uh, worked with us in, in Peru for 30 years. And so we named the, the new species after the Sanchez family. Cool. Uh, yeah. And var- Varzia, of course, is an ecological term, which means it's what? Flood, flooded forest. Right. Uh, it is flooded forest, and uh, that is a habitat that is uh, fragile because uh, if you interrupt the flow of the Amazon River, you destroy Varzia forest. Mm-hmm. It requires annual flooding. And so it's always a conservation concern because of damming projects on the, the Amazon River, uh, climate change, and so on. And the population is just, it lives in a little thin strip of flooded forests along the rivers. It occurs you know, fairly widely in the Amazon, but uh, you know, only a mile or less deep on either side of the Amazon. So it's a conservation concern. Cool. We didn't know this. We wouldn't have known this without uh, the specimens that were preserved long before we had any inkling that there was something going on there. And, and, and you mentioned Varzia thrush. Did you also list the name of the other one? Uh, that is Hawkswell's thrush. Okay, Hawkswell's it's thrush. It's a widespread, pretty common species. Okay, very good. Uh, we've got our first caller on the line. We have Ann from Nacogdoches. Ann, how are you tonight? Um, I'm doing fine. My question is about the study skin collection. And I'm wondering, like, say for a bird like the northern cardinal, is there a minimum number that you would want to collect each year to be uh, relevant for studying? And then would you want that same amount every year to look at them over time? Or what are some of the criteria for that? Something like a cardinal, we're not aggressively collecting cardinals. Now, if, if, if somebody wanted to aggressively collect cardinals, um, they could. They could study population structure of cardinals across Louisiana, see whether the populations on either side of the Red River uh, differ genetically and that that sort of thing. Um, but the cardinals we get now are largely window kills and road kills. Uh, we get enough of those that we don't need to go uh, kill any cardinals. Uh, but your question... Any, any species that you do really uh, specifically want to collect a, a certain number every year over time looking for changes? Well, we, uh, we should. We just don't have the resources to do it. You know, I mean, we should pick a, a couple of common species for which collecting does not impact the population significantly. 
and monitor them for accumulation of pesticides and uh, things like that through time. We just don't have the resources to do it. Most of our current field work is in areas that are very poorly known and very poorly explored in Peru, Bolivia, Brazil, Indonesia, and so on. Uh, but this uh, gives me an opportunity to, to tell you that uh, uh, you, I'm surprised somebody doesn't call in and say, you know, why are you collecting or killing any birds? And I think that's a, actually a good question. And things have changed for the better so much in the last 100 years. 100 years ago, it wouldn't have occurred to anybody in the audience to, to question whether it was ethically appropriate to go out and collect birds. And now we're under constant pressure to justify that. And I think that's a healthy thing that people are concerned about the lives of birds. Uh, we would not collect any birds if we thought that that collection would impact the population of those species. So uh, endangered species, we don't we have no interest in collecting those whatsoever. You couldn't pay us to collect an endangered species if you, even if it were, were legal. Uh, I mean, we're pretty rabid conservationists. So most of our active collecting is focused on species for which the impact is minimal. Thank you. Thanks, yeah. Ann. So to follow up on Ann's question, uh, maybe she was kind of wondering how many is enough? What's a good sample maybe for species X? Yeah, that's a, that is a good question. And it just depends on the question. Mm -hmm. uh, usually for statistics, if we're comparing two samples, if there is a, a difference, it's going to show up after 20 or 25 specimens from both samples. Okay. And okay. if it's uh, collecting birds, preserving them, skinning them, and so on is costly. You know, this is, it takes an, it takes uh, 45 minutes to make a good cardinal specimen and do all the labels and things like that. So uh, we have to take that uh, cost benefit calculation into uh, incorporate that into our field program we get we can't collect an infinite number of birds we don't have a place to put them we have to do it very judiciously mm -hmm. and very strategically mm -hmm. okay we have another caller on the line we have jack from shreveport jack are you still there yes i am okay go ahead uh, I, find, I find your program extremely interesting right, thank you and my question is has not got anything to do with the previous questions or the the uh, subject matter so far i just yesterday uh read where there, i think it was new york but there were a one th approximately 1000 birds that were dead as i think flew into a building a side of a building mm -hmm. If you know anything about that, can you explain to me why they haven't done something about the the loss of, you know, these birds? Yes. Van, Van I'll let you tackle that one. Okay, yeah, that was, uh, that's really sad. And, and uh, Jack, that was just one building in Chicago, just one. Uh, there were probably tens of thousands of birds that died that night by flying into lighted buildings. Uh, there is a, and, and by the way, that the um, 
that's more specimens than we could prepare in an entire year. I mean, the, the drain on bird populations is is incredible, and it goes on, uh, uh, you know, many times each spring and fall migration throughout the country. It's not just uh, not just Chicago. Uh, the impact is undoubtedly much larger than we than you would you would think. It's probably partly responsible for for the decline of birds. So why don't we do something? Well, there is a program. Uh, Charles Williams right here in Baton Rouge is uh, spearheading this for Louisiana. It's called Lights Out. Um, and it is a program that tries to encourage buildings to turn out their lights during big migration nights. And we could save hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of birds per year if we got all these buildings to do that. So, so yes, it's a huge conservation concern, and yes, we're trying to do something about it, but trying to convince people that this is important um, is uh, a struggle. Yeah, and we've got architects to talk to about that and, and glass buildings, and, and so the lights typically... Uh, when they're on an, an inclement weather seems to be the big problem when there's fog or rain and the birds exactly. are aloft and they're disoriented that light that light coming from the 16th floor is a beacon and, and they're they have no perception of the ground they don't have all the instruments that or at least we don't think they do that airplanes have so they're they're trying to get out of bad weather they see that beacon of light and they fly into the window and perish. So it's usually correlated with bad weather events, inclement weather events. So th I'm sorry, th that's, uh, I, go, go ahead, Jack. To, I, I certainly appreciate that answer. It, it bothered me a lot that such a waste of animal life. And then I, you know, I got to thinking there's a thousand birds just in one night that are dead on the sidewalks. And then the cities, I guess, it's responsibility. The city uh, of Chicago to clean that up, and 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 so there won't be any just carcasses laying. That's around. right. That's right. And of the known direct mortalities of birds, flying into buildings, flying into guy wires, flying into towers is in the top three or four of known mortalities, direct mortalities of birds. So we have known about it for a long time. It's just really tough to get people to honor uh, new ways of, of building things so birds don't fly into it. Um, and so that would help a lot. So thank thank you for the call, Jack. FSU is a great school, and my wife graduated from LSU Shreveport. Well, thank you for that. Thank, thanks for the call, Jack. You're welcome. Great. Well, we're running out of time. Dr. Remsen, I still have a bunch of questions. We have people waiting on the phone, and we we just can't get to them. You're just a popular guy and a popular topic, and I really appreciate you coming tonight. Well, thanks for having me on, Cliff, and uh, uh, I'll come back and, and talk more anytime you want. Oh, that's great. Well, I will definitely take you up on that. I appreciate it. Um, so Dr. Remsen's phoning in from Baton Rouge, a little easier than driving all the way up here to Shreveport five hours away, and I appreciate you calling in, and uh, thank you so much. You, thank you for having me on, Cliff. It's an honor. All right, we're going to hop over to our conservation tip, 
and uh, that topic is rain barrels. Water running through our pipes and garden hoses isn't free, but rain sure is when falling from the sky. What if you captured some of that rainwater to use on your native wildscape or garden? Try hooking up a rain barrel below your rain gutters so you can collect some of what of that wet stuff falling from the clouds. That natural rainwater can get your plants through short periods of drought without the chlorine that's in city water. There are two challenges with maintaining most rain barrels, leaves and mosquitoes. You can add a leaf catcher to your rain barrel's pipes to separate the leaves, the pine straw, the acorns, and so forth that, so they don't fall into your rain barrel. For mosquitoes, add some fine mesh wire to the openings into the rain barrel to keep them out, and then add some non-toxic mosquito floats inside your rain barrels to help keep those biting insects from multiplying. Have the rain barrel ready to water those plants so they, in turn, can provide cover and, water, cover and food for your backyard critters. Look for rain barrel designs and supplies online or look in your local hardware or feed store. You can go do it yourself or search out companies that make larger decorative rain barrels. Do it for the birds. So this concludes this evening's episode. You've been listening to Bird Calls with me, Cliff Shackelford, resident ornithologist here at Red River Radio, and our phone-in guest, Dr. Van Remsen, curator emeritus with the Museum of Natural Science at LSU Baton Rouge. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Remsen. This show has been made possible in part by the Community Foundation of North Louisiana. Tonight's episode was assisted by Kiara Lafitte, and there were several volunteers operating the phone bank. Tonight's sound file of a common grackle was, was recorded by Paul Marvin and can be found at the website xenocanto.org. The photo we used for the, for the bird on the bird calls page, the common grackle, was snapped by James Childress. This show will be available soon as a podcast on our website at redriverradio.org. If you have a photo or a sound clip of a bird that you'd like me to identify, you can send an email to me at redriverradiomail at gmail.com. Again, redriverradiomail at gmail.com. Be sure to join us for the next episode of Bird Calls next month at 6 p.m. on Tuesday, November 14th. Be sure to phone in your pledge to keep this show and others going on Red River Radio. And remember, do all this for the birds.